Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Hi there. Welcome back. Okie dokie. So we have had a few longer episodes lately, so I'm going to keep this one just a little shorter for us. I have a lot to say about today's passage, so we are going to jump right in. Today we're looking at an excerpt from Matt Haig's intriguing novel, The Midnight Library. As is the case sometimes with the novels we look at here on the show, I will warn you now that The passage today is a sort of spoiler, not directly, but enough that if you are sensitive to such things, you might want to skip this week and come back after you've read it. And do read it because it is fantastic. Now, at the heart of the story is the protagonist, Nora, and her ability through the Midnight Library to taste different versions of her life, what things might have looked like if she'd made different choices along the way. I don't know about you, but the mere idea of this totally hooked me. Don't we all wonder how our lives would be different if we'd taken a left instead of a right at key intersections in our lives? So before I end up leaping into the discussion, before I even give you the excerpt, here we go. This is from Matt Haig's novel, The Midnight Library. It is easy to mourn the lives we aren't living, easy to wish we developed other talents, said yes to different offers, easy to wish we'd worked harder, loved better, handled our finances more astutely, been more popular, stayed in the band, gone to Australia, said yes to the coffee or done more bloody yoga. It takes no effort to miss the friends we didn't make and the work we didn't do and the people we didn't marry and the children we didn't have. It is not difficult to see yourself through the lens of other people and to wish you are all the different kaleidoscope versions of you they wanted you to be. It is easy to regret and keep regretting ad infinitum until our time runs out. But it is not the lives we regret not living that are the real problem. It is the regret itself. It's the regret that makes us shrivel and wither and feel like our own and other people's worst enemy. We can't tell if any of those other versions would have been better or worse. Those lives are happening, it is true, but you are happening as well, and that is the happening we have to focus on. Of course, we can't visit every place or meet every person or do every job, yet most of what we'd feel in any life is still available. We don't have to play every game to know what winning feels like. We don't have to hear every piece of music in the world to understand music. We don't have to have tried every variety of grape from every vineyard to know the pleasure of wine. Love and laughter and fear and pain are universal currencies. We just have to close our eyes and savor the taste of the drink in front of us and listen to the song as it plays. We are as completely and utterly alive as we are in any other life and have access to the same emotional spectrum. We only need to be 
one person. We only need to feel one existence. We don't have to do everything in order to be everything because we are already infinite. While we are alive, we always contain a future of multifarious possibility. So let's be kind to the people in our own existence. Let's occasionally look up from the spot in which we are because wherever we happen to be standing, the sky above goes on forever. Yesterday, I knew I had no future and that it was impossible for me to accept my life as it is now. And yet today, that same messy life seems full of hope, potential. The impossible, I suppose, happens via living. Will my life be miraculously free from pain, despair, grief, heartbreak, hardship, loneliness, and depression? No. But do I want to live? Yes. Yes. A thousand times. Yes. Mm, isn't that just so damn fantastic? Oh my gosh. Okay, so a lot of this is pretty straightforward, but I just want to dig around it a little bit. So first, let's just dive into that very first sentence. It is easy to mourn the lives we aren't living. And then Nora goes on to list examples of that, wishing we'd said yes to different offers or worked harder or loved better, etc. She says that it takes no effort to miss the friends we didn't make or the people we didn't marry. And then a few lines later, she says something that it's so easy to forget. She says, we can't tell if any of those other versions would have been better or worse. This is huge. I mean, such a big part of the regret we feel when we look back on choices we've made is the underlying belief that we may have made the wrong one, right? Isn't that part and parcel of the entire idea of regret? The problem with that is that it's predicated on the assumption that only the most ideal outcome would have resulted had we made that other choice. In hindsight, we tend to suffer two lapses of memory. One, we forget the totality of what led us to the decision that we actually made. All the many, many factors that were present at the time and that boiled down to us making the choice that we actually made instead of the alternative that we are now wondering about. And two, we forget that we made the choice we did because we fully anticipated its ideal outcome as well. And though we know that unexpected twists and turns pop up along the paths we're actually taking, often we somehow forget that the same would have happened on that other path as well. It is easy to mourn the lives we aren't living because we don't have to deal with their realities, right? And because we assign to those lives only the most ideal outcomes. Now, this idea always brings to mind for me one of the most heartbreaking stories I have ever heard. And I think about this almost every time I catch myself feeling that kind of, if only, regret. Now, my husband Justin is a huge soccer fan, and he's where I learned about this story a few years ago. So in November of 2016, the underdog Brazilian soccer team Chapecoense tied in the semifinals of the Copa Sudamerica after the goaltender Danilo made this epic last gasp save, sending his team to the biggest game in their team's history. 
Now, if you had asked any player or coach on that team or any of their families or any of their fans if Danilo's save and the team's opportunity to go to the finals was, I don't know, the wrong decision, I cannot imagine a single person who would have agreed. This is what they had worked for and trained for. This was the opportunity of a lifetime for many of them. Now, similarly, had that save not been made and they'd lost that semifinal game, I can't imagine a single one of them who wouldn't, if asked, have also believed that their lives would all have been better if they'd somehow managed to win and go on to those finals. This feels obvious, right? Who would wish that their team had not won? Who would believe that who or who wouldn't believe that this opportunity of a lifetime wasn't the best thing that could have happened to all of them? The thing is, is that five days after that semifinal game and Danilo's epic save, the team was en route to the final in Medellin, Colombia, when their plane crashed, killing 71 of the 77 people on board. I mean, this is an enormous and incalculable tragedy, of course. And it's definitely an extreme example of what we're talking about today. But this is just it. Had the team not made it to the finals, they would have gone on with their lives, possibly harboring regret about coming so close to the finals but not making it, having absolutely no idea of the near miss that saved their lives. We have no idea what different choices or different paths might have included. Like Nora says here, we can't tell if any of those other versions would have been better or worse. No one on that team would have had the thought had they lost that semifinal game, oh, phew, I'm glad we didn't reach our goals. There might have been a plane crash on the other on the way to the final. I mean, things like plane crashes are not on our radar when we consider the consequences of choices or when we make our plans or set our goals. They can't be. I mean, partly because it's just simply impossible to account for every potential scenario and partly because we cannot live and thrive while also imagining that a plane crash could be waiting around every corner for us. I mean, this is what makes these two lines from this passage so powerful. It is easy to mourn the lives we aren't living because they only live in our imaginations and we do not have to face the twists and turns and completely unforeseen hiccups that those lives would also have inevitably included as well. And we can't tell if any of those other versions would have been better or worse. We don't know. We can't know. The only life that we can know about for sure is the one that we're actually living. Everything else is imagination and conjecture. We have no idea whether there might have been a plane crash waiting for us down any one of those other paths. Now, Nora goes on to say, but it is not the lives we regret not living that are the real problem. It is the regret itself. It's the regret that makes us shrivel and wither and feel like our own and other people's worst enemy. We talked a little about regret back in episode six, which of course I'll link in the show notes. So go check out that episode if you would like to think a little more about this. But I do think it's important to just touch on one thing here, at least briefly. Not every choice we make in our lives will be the quote-unquote right ones. Again, like we talked about in that episode, sometimes our choices will have consequences that we struggle with, that 
cause pain or damage relationships or somehow go against our values in some way. The regret that can be found in those choices can, if we choose to utilize them as a tool, serve to teach us to illuminate who we want to be and how we want to move through the world and ultimately help us make choices in the future that are more closely aligned with that version of ourselves. She says here that it's the regret that makes us shrivel and wither and feel like our own and other people's worst enemy. And like the discussion in episode six about guilt, it seems to me that whether this is true or not centers around how we approach this regret. Regret that we wallow in, moments or choices that we simply replay over and over and over again that we cling to have exactly that effect, right? They do make us shrivel and wither and feel like our own and other people's worst enemy. But regret, like guilt, can serve us mightily if we are willing to see it as a signal, if we are willing to dig in and excavate it for information and then apply this information to our future decisions. As always, this is where curiosity comes in. These questions, you know, what precisely is the regret centered around? What other choices were available to us at that time? What did we, I mean, did we even know about those other choices? Would it have been realistic to have actually anticipated the consequences of the choices we made versus those other options? What can we learn from this regret? What does it tell us about who we want to be or values that matter to us? How can this regret fuel us going forward? How can it serve to bring us closer to living in line with what we really believe or what really matters to us? How can we use it to connect us to others or better to ourselves. Regret, just like guilt, is toxic when left to simply fester, when we use it as a tool to judge ourselves or to self-flagellate. But we can embrace regret as a learning opportunity. We can create meaning and purpose by wringing out of it every last ounce of what it has to teach us. And we can apply that learning so that we can avoid making the exact same regrettable choices over and over and over again. Okay, so this next section might be just my very favorite part of this passage. She says, Of course we can't visit every place or meet every person or do every job. Yet most of what we'd feel in any life is still available. We don't have to play every game to know what winning feels like. We don't have to hear every piece of music in the world to understand music. We don't have to have tried every variety of grape from every vineyard to know the pleasure of wine. Love and laughter and fear and pain are universal currencies. And she goes on to say, we have just... We just have to close our eyes and savor the taste of the drink in front of us and listen to the song as it plays, that we are as completely and utterly alive as we are in any other life and have access to the same emotional spectrum. We only need to be one person. We only need to feel one existence. We don't have to do everything in order to be everything because we are already infinite. While we are alive, we always contain a future of multivarious possibility. 
Oh my God, I love this so much. Okay, that line again. While we are alive, we always contain a future of multifarious possibility. Oh my gosh, isn't that so powerful? And isn't this why that regret, lift to simply fester, is just such a tragedy? While we live there, just spinning over and over around some old choice or some old event, we are missing this never-ending series of opportunities playing out in front of us every moment. While we are alive, we always contain a future of multifarious possibility. Always. Always. We always contain a future riddled with infinite possibilities. And sometimes those possibilities are to, you know, do. But they aren't limited to that, right? I mean, more importantly, that future is full of infinite possibilities to feel, to be, to experience that full spectrum of what it means to be human. She says, we are as completely and utterly alive as we are in any other life and have access to the same emotional spectrum. She says, love and laughter and fear and pain are universal currencies. When we cultivate our curiosity, when we look around our worlds and our lives with awareness and interest and wonder, we get to see these possibilities. I mean, this is how even the hardest or most regrettable moments in our lives become part of the richness of living along that full emotional spectrum. So long as we are still here and we are still breathing, there is infinite possibility in our future to feel and to be everything. My friend Maggie says something that has just really stuck with me. She says, it's all here for you. It is all available to you. And whether that it is old trauma that we're still navigating or fears within ourselves that we're confronting or it's love that has bubbled up within us or joy or small moments of peace or laughter or connection. So long as we are still here and still breathing, there is infinite possibility in our future to feel and to be everything. It's all available for us. In this passage, Nora points out that her life will not be miraculously free from pain, despair, grief, heartbreak, hardship, loneliness, depression. But the full emotional spectrum includes those things too, doesn't it? I mean, knowing that does not necessarily make them easier when we're in the midst of them. I mean, not by a long shot, right? But they are part of being human. They are part of every life that we could live, no matter how carefully we make our choices or consider every possible outcome. These things are a part of every life. And like the love and laughter and joy, they can serve to connect us, to allow us greater understanding and empathy and compassion toward ourselves and others. It is easy to mourn the lives we aren't living, to imagine the ways everything might be perfect if only we'd taken a different path or married a different person or moved to a different city. But we can't tell if any of those other versions would have been better or worse. The only life that we can know about for sure is the one that we are actually living. And if we have regret, we owe it to ourselves and those around us to excavate it for every last piece of information and learning that we can, and then 
to move forward with curiosity into what's next, utilizing everything that we learned from that regret. Most of what we'd feel in any version of our lives is still available to us. And we are as completely and utterly alive as we are in any other life and have access to the same emotional spectrum. We don't have to do everything in order to be everything because we are already infinite. And while we are alive, we always contain a future of multifarious possibility. So let's do our best to embrace this life, to get curious and fascinated by what is in front of us in this moment and within the choices that we are living with in this life, to dive into those infinite possibilities of being and feeling that are in front of us every day that we are alive. So again, that passage is from Matt Haig's novel, The Midnight Library, and I really can't recommend it enough. As always, you can find the link to the book in the show notes at cindygivinoli.com backslash podcast. So today's listener contribution is from Lily B. And here's what she says. I was one of those people who snottily declared that I did not have time to waste on reading fiction. Then my 15-year-old daughter, Samantha, begged me to read a book that she swore changed her life, and I agreed, all while internally rolling my eyes and expecting the worst. I mean, not only fiction, but teen fiction? Yikes. The book was John Green's The Fault in Our Stars, and this is the quote from it that changed the way I see fiction, and really, my daughter. The quote, I'm in love with you, and I'm not in the business of denying myself the simple pleasure of saying true things. I'm in love with you, and I know that love is just a shout into the void, and that oblivion is inevitable, and that we're all doomed, and that there will come a day when all our labor has been returned to dust, and I know the sun will swallow the only earth we'll ever have, and I am in love with you. And Lily says, it's a little cheesy, but it reminded me that there is a place for a little cheese in our lives. I want my daughter to feel empowered to say true things, and to always believe that Love matters even when terrible, heartbreaking things are an inevitable part of life. And I remembered also, after reading this, how when I was her age, I could get lost in the world of a book and how they affected me. And it's brought Samantha and I closer to have shared this world together. Lily, I love that. Thank you for sharing this. It's just so great. And also, you know, welcome back to the world of fiction. I love that story was a way for you and Samantha to connect and to speak each other's language, but a powerful connection. Alrighty, so next week we are talking about Ross Gay's absolutely delightful book, The Book of Delights. Until then, be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givinoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word. Say the Word.